Again, welcome to Freedom. I'm really glad to see you here today. And to those of you who are joining us online, welcome to you as well. We're glad to have you be able to join us that way. I don't know about you. Worship has been uh, really rich and sweet, and yet uh, I'm not all that surprised that I sense a heaviness in the room that uh, we probably need to just pause and uh, deal with before we go any further. And I'm... uh, I don't really care how this sounds. I'm just going to say it straight. We talk honestly in here. Uh, Mardi Gras is always a season where there's stuff going on in the heavenlies that we need to be aware of and that we need to be uh, probably a little more aggressive in dealing with. And so uh, we shouldn't be surprised as Fat Tuesday is upon us that on the Sunday leading up to that, that there would be just stuff stirred up and kind of lingering over the eastern shore. And we have authority over that. So uh, would you just join me as we uh, stand together in prayer? I know we just came out of prayer, but we're just going to stand together in prayer and taking authority over anything from uh, the kingdom of darkness. And would you just join me in clearing the room so that this is just a safe place for us to experience what God has for us. Would you pray together with me? Father, uh, it is our joy to declare again that you are our Father, that we are your children. And we give thanks today for the Lord Jesus, for his life, for his death, burial, and resurrection, and for all that has been won for us at the cross of Calvary. And Jesus, with one voice, we say together that you are our Lord. And we submit ourselves personally, our families, and Freedom Church to you and your authority. And as we submit ourselves to you, we give thanks for your blood that cleanses and covers us, and we pray that in a fresh way that you would do just that, that you would forgive us of our sins. We don't want there to be anything that's a barrier between us and you today. And we now take authority over every demonic spirit that has any assignment or attachment to anyone here today or toward Freedom Church. And in Jesus' name, we bind those spirits. We command you to be silent, to leave us, to leave this place. We take authority over any spirits with assignments to fair hope. Or over the eastern shore, we revoke your rights and we command you to leave in the name of Jesus and to go only where Jesus assigns you to go and you are not allowed to return. But we welcome the Spirit of God in this place and we say, come Holy Spirit. You breathe life in this place and you bring glory to the Father and the Son by your work here today. Would you just be still in his presence for a moment? Would you invite the Lord to just speak a fresh word to you? And would you just open yourself up to receive that? Would you invite him to bring about life change in you today? Jesus, we welcome the voice of your spirit. We welcome your work here. We ask you to change us by your power. And we give you thanks for your love. And we pray these things, Jesus, in your name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Would you be seated? Well, again, so good to uh, share and worship with you. Uh, If you haven't been with us for the past three weeks, today we are concluding a series that's entitled Twisted. Uh, It has been a look at over four weeks of a look at four different passages of Scripture that we are notorious for twisting into something other than what they actually were intended to say. Uh, we, we love to sort of cherry pick certain verses of the Bible and sort of make them mean what we want them to mean for our purposes. And some of them we just twist the meaning and some of them we twist the actual wording. And the passage that we're going to look at today is one of those that we actually twist the wording 
and change the meaning a whole lot just by just that little twist. So I want to begin by just asking you a question. Don't give me a Sunday school answer. I want you just just off the cuff, give me an honest answer to this question. By a show of hands, how many of you would say today that if you had a little more money, life would probably be a little bit easier right now? A lot of you. Okay, for all of you who raised your hands... Surprise for you. I have taped a $100 bill under every seat. You can reach out. If you raise your hand, you can reach under. There's $100 there for you. You're going to have a better day. No, there's not $100 under your seat. You'd be looking for a new pastor by next week if I had taped a $100 bill under 300 chairs. But I do get it. Most of us, if we're honest, feel like if I had a little more money, not a hundred bucks, but if I had a little more money, if I had a, if I had a raise, if I could just have an influx of cash, life would be a little better. It would be a little easier. We're going to talk about money today. And I, I'm just going to tell you as a warning that, um, what we'll talk about today, probably as much as anything we'll talk about all year, Many of us are going to be tempted to file away very quickly. The things that I'll share with you today, you'll probably agree with most everything that I say. And it will be very tempting to just go, uh-huh, yeah, that's right. And do our best to get it filed away in a safe place out of our consciousness and move on and not think about this. And I want to just challenge you to be very careful today to not do that. Because if you'll buy into and embrace what we're going to talk about and look at today... It has the potential to be one of the most liberating messages of the year. So if you'll just press in with me and, and wrestle with what we're going to talk about today. Now, the passage that we're going to look at, as I said, is, is it may be the most misquoted verse in the Bible because it gets so frequently stated in a way that is not actually quite what it says in the Bible. And it's funny how you can take a quote and you can change it by as little as one word and change the meaning so much. In fact, I'll just give as, a, as an example... One of the most famous quotes in American history, I think you would agree, would be the first words that were spoken by Neil Armstrong as he first set foot on the moon. You remember that? You remember the, the famous quote there? It's just funny to me that his quote, which we repeat accurately most of the time, was actually a misstatement. What he said was not what he meant to say. You remember what he said. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. It's maybe the most memorable line in American history. It doesn't make sense. The line doesn't make sense. Man and mankind mean the same thing. It's one small step for man, it's one giant leap for mankind. It doesn't really make sense to say it that way. And he acknowledges that. He left out one little word in just the excitement of that moment as he took the last step off the ladder of the lunar lander. What he meant to say was, that's one small step for a man. I'm just taking one more little... Ten-inch step off of the last step onto the moon. And for the first time in the history of the world, a human is standing on something other than the earth. He said it meant to say it's one small step for a man, but a giant leap for mankind. One little word makes it sort of lose its meaning. Well, the passage that we're going to look at today, it gets changed by one little phrase, but it radically changes the meaning of the passage. The text that we're considering today is 1 Timothy 6.10. You've heard it many times in your life. For the love of money, everybody say it together with me, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. But that is not how it gets quoted most of the time, is it? 
how does it get just spit out in the common vernacular? Everybody knows it. You can say it in unison. Money's the root of all evil. How many of you have heard that before in your life? That money is the root of all evil. Everybody has heard it that way. That's just how it gets said. Somebody recently alluded to the fact that they had seen uh, in a diner a tip jar by the cash register, and it had a little sign on the front that said, Money is the root of all evil, so free yourself from some evil and leave us a tip. That's pretty sharp, just not quite on target, but that's what we tend to do with it. It is not money, but the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. But I think if we're honest, most of us would say, I don't really have to worry so much about that. That's one of those passages that's for all those rich people, all those greedy people, all those people out there who love money. I'm just glad I'm not one of those people who loves money. But I've got a question for you. How do you know whether you love money or not? As we've said many times before, remember the scripture says that the human heart is deceitfully wicked. It's not only bad, it's tricky. You, you can be off base and your heart will lie to you and tell you, I don't have that problem. You don't have to worry about that. That's not you. And in this area, the human heart is very deceitful. We'll think, oh, I don't love money, but we really do need to be, thank you, sir. We, we need to be alert to what the scripture says about whether or not we love money. Ephesians, excuse me, Ecclesiastes 5.10 Tells us this is a pretty good test. Whoever loves money never has enough, and whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. Now, at this point, I start to get uncomfortable. I don't know about you, but I start getting a little uncomfortable when I think about my own life and experience. Whoever loves money is never satisfied with their income. Whoever loves money never has quite enough. I think back to my own adult experience, and I can remember when I was a very, very young married man and just starting to train under somebody in student ministry, and the uh, student pastor that I was training under, Stephen was his name, and Stephen was, uh, I guess, probably about eight years older than me, and he just struggled to get by. He served a typical church that, you know, believed in the motto, work them to death and don't pay them anything when it came to their staff, and so he had, you know, a family of five living on one income, and they were just, just barely scraping by, and I remember after watching him struggle for two or three years like that, just be so elated that he finally got a raise from the church. They got a really big bump. They finally acknowledged we're about to starve you to death and he shared with me what they raised his pay to $41,000 a year and I remember hearing that and just being floored I'm like man he's rich I can't imagine what it would be like to have that kind of money coming in 30 years old and making $41,000 a year well that was when I was living in Tuscaloosa and still in school Fast forward about eight years. God has relocated me from Tuscaloosa to Fairhope. I'm a student pastor. The church down here hires me and take a wild guess what they paid me. $41,000 a year. It is amazing when you shift from him making 41000 to me making 41000 how that figure goes from here to kind of down here. And... Though at first that seemed like such a windfall, it's amazing 
when there's no benefits, there's no retirement, there's no insurance, and you're living on the eastern shore where people tend to live pretty comfortably. How it doesn't take you very long of living here before you start feeling like, man, you know, if I could just get a little bit more. If I could just get some benefits, if I could just, which by the way, that was a bait and switch. They told me it was with all these benefits, and then I got here, and they went, oh yeah, about those benefits, there are none. Sorry about that. So yeah, that that was the first little stinger, but the longer I went making that, the more I'm looking around at how everybody else is living, and I just start thinking, if I could just get a little bump, if I could just make a little more. You know, the years pass, and you get a little bump, and it seems like six months or a year down the line, and you're just right back at the same place. I just need another bump. I just need a little more. Well, I've been doing full-time ministry for 20, next month will be 25 years I've been doing full-time ministry, and I've had quite a few bumps in 25 years. And the one thing that I have found that is universal is however much you get bumped, it doesn't take but about six months to a year before you're thinking, I just need another bump, and I'd be at a much, much better place, which makes Ecclesiastes 5.10 start to feel really convicting, that whoever loves money never has quite enough. Whoever loves money is never satisfied with his income. How much money, don't don't say this out loud, but I want you to answer it for yourself. How much money would you need infused right now, or how much money would you need in terms of an annual income right now to really be at a good place? I suspect that for most of us, whatever that number is, could be summed up with this phrase, just a little more. However much you make, if we just made a little more, we'd be at such a better place, which is a pretty good reminder that there are probably way more of us who love money than want to admit that we love money. We just need a little more. So let's press into this, and we're going to do exactly what we've done the last three weeks we press into one passage, the three things we're going to do when we interpret it, we're going to look at it in context. Then we're going to see what other verses, how they speak to that. And the last thing we're going to do is try and apply what we've heard. That's going to be the challenge today is to go home and apply what we talk about. So first of all, the context, 1 Timothy 6. And if you've got your Bibles, all the verses we're going to talk about are in your outline. But if you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn to 1 Timothy 6 with me. We're going to uh, get a glimpse of a good portion of this chapter today. 1 Timothy is one of the uh, pastoral epistles from Paul, and what that means really is um, he wrote these to two different people, what are considered his pastoral epistles. He wrote to Timothy and to Titus. Both of these guys were essentially Paul's sons in the ministry. They weren't uh, blood-related to Paul, but he truly was a spiritual father to them. He poured himself into them and mentored them. And so the letters that he wrote to Timothy and to Titus are very personal in nature, just trying to bring them along. And, and help them deal with the things that they as young pastors would have to face. And so uh, this is one of those letters. And in this, when Paul gets to the, the latter part of First Timothy, he begins to address uh, some specific issues. And he's going to touch on money and wealth. But if we look at this in context, you'll discover that that's not really the main focus of what he's talking about. In verses 6 and 7, and we'll pick it up there, he says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. 
For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. The truth of the matter is, godliness is the theme of this section of the letter. If, if you, we backed up and looked at the, this chapter from the beginning, you'll see that uh, in verses 3 and 5, and he just over and over, he's referring to godliness. And by the way, I'll just say this as an aside. If you want to back up and read the, the chapter in its entirety later, you'll notice that um, he... In, in verses like 3, 4, and 5, setting up where we're going to pick up today, he's talking about uh, those who refuse to accept the truth. They refuse to acknowledge that sound doctrine is indeed the truth. And, and he goes on to just, I mean, Paul does not pull any punches. He goes on to say in verse 5 uh, that these are people whose minds are de- depraved and deprived of the truth. He's swinging a big stick, wouldn't you say? depraved, deprived of the truth. And here's how he describes them. They are people who imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. That sounds a lot like the prosperity gospel we were talking about last week. If you just love Jesus, if you just pray and you have faith, you're going to have plenty of this. You're going to have plenty of money. It's this depraved way of thinking that godliness is a pathway to material gain. He said, don't think that for a minute. Now, in contrast to that, he says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. So godliness is the goal. Now, the verse we just read, it's real easy to understand this with our heads, and it is hard to get it the 12 inches from here down to here, isn't it? That you didn't bring anything into the world, and you can't take anything out of it. We've all heard the old line, you know, you're never going to see a hearse with a U-Haul attached behind it. It's never going to happen. Maybe you heard the story about the, the rich man, just loads of money, went to the doctor, And the doctor told him that you have very advanced stage four cancer. It is terminal. There is no hope. I'm sorry, but you're going to die very soon. And the guy went home, told his wife, and immediately pulled out a great big suitcase and started stuffing all the cash into it that he possibly could. His wife's just watching, trying to figure out what in the world is he doing. He gets through. He fills it just as jam full of cash as he can get it. Latches it back together, and he starts climbing up in the attic. And she says, what are you doing with that suitcase? And he said, well, it's really clear. I'm going to die soon, so I'm just putting this in the attic so that when I die on the way to heaven, I can just grab the suitcase on the way out, take it with me when I go. So sure enough, several weeks later, the man passes. They go through all the deal to the funeral home, the funeral The wife comes back after the funeral, and it was only then that it clicked for her, the whole thing with the suitcase. And so out of curiosity, she goes up in the attic to look. And sure enough, there's the suitcase, still packed full of cash. She just shakes her head and says, poor old fool. I told him he should have put it in the basement and grabbed it on the way down. (laughs) Now granted... Maybe a little bit off there, but you get the point. You cannot take it with you when you go. Now, Paul goes on to say in verse 8, But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. 
Now, if you're reading from the 2019 Eastern Shore Standard Version of that, it actually says, but if we have food and clothing and a smartphone and an SUV and a flat screen and a satellite dish and a comfortable bed and air conditioning and a TV in all of the main rooms of our house, and if we have a soft mattress and at least a 600-thread count set of sheets on the bed, we will be content with that. Amen. Yes. Isn't it really amazing how much we have to add to that verse to be able to say it with any sense of truth and integrity? All of the things that we have to add to food and clothing before we think that we could ever be content. And Paul's saying, no, it doesn't take all this other stuff. If the basic necessities of life are provided for, we can learn contentment. The basic truth that he's trying to teach us is this. Don't run past this. That the richest are not those who have the most, but they are those who need the least. I want to say that one again because we need for that to sink in. In fact, some of us, if you can just take that one thing home with you today, it will have been worth the day. That the richest people in the world are not those who have the most. They are those who who need the least. I don't know of anything that teaches us that uh, more clearly or more quickly than going on a mission trip to a developing nation. I'm curious, how many of you have had that opportunity to go to a part of the world to see people who are in abject poverty and who live with great joy? A lot of you have. It's wonderful and a little disturbing at first, isn't it? To go to places where you realize how incredibly impoverished people are, that that they have dirt floors, and at the very best, they might have bare cinder block walls, oftentimes with no electricity, or if there is electricity in the house, there's one little single bulb fixture in the house, and that is the only electricity. There's no cooking inside the house. There's no running water inside the house. When you say they have the bare necessities, it is the slimmest version of the bare necessities, Yet it is not their poverty that bowls you over. It's their joy. That they are so content that they look around and they, they don't have the sense of, well, if I, just, if I just had that phone, if I just had that car, if I just could have a home like that, they just have this incredible sense of joy. It's not those who have the most. It's those who need the least who really are the richest. But the problem for us is discontentment. Discontentment can make a rich person poor. And on the flip side, contentment can make a poor person rich. Do we believe that today? Contentment is the fastest way to get people out of poverty. Because it will make a poor person rich to be content with where they are. Let's pick up in verse 9. Those who want to get rich, somebody say Powerball, somebody say lottery, those who want to get rich. You know, I mean, listen, the only reason we play that is we just want to tithe it when we win. We just want to bless people when we win. If we were so cotton picking interested in blessing people, why don't we just take what we're spending on the lottery tickets and give it to somebody in need? We're kidding ourselves. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. At this point, 
I feel like I can just see Paul right now. And he's standing on the railroad tracks. And he's got flares and, and all kinds of red flags. And he's waving his arms. I mean, read his words again. He's doing everything in his power to go, please stop the train. The bridge is out ahead. This is terrible. You've got to stop going in this direction. Hear his words again. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. My goodness, with that description, what kind of horror must lead us to that? Just wanting to get rich. Just living always for a little bit more. And Paul is doing everything he can to go, please stop the train. Nothing but a train wreck ahead. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. You ever known anybody who's done that? Who for the love of money has just pierced themselves with all kinds of grief. They've departed from a lifestyle of just seeking God above everything else. Because they wanted to chase after what money could supply. Sometimes that will manifest itself in such a way that the person, because of a love of money, will let money and stuff become come between them and somebody that had been a close friend or a close family member. I can't think of any time that that rears its head more consistently than right after someone dies, somebody who had stuff. And suddenly family members who have loved each other who have been through so much together and suddenly there's a rift between them because they're wanting the same stuff. How many times have you seen people in the pursuit of money and stuff pierce themselves with great grief and live for years now with division and hurt over the desire for stuff? Sounds like money's bad, doesn't it? Sounds like money is just toxic. It's bad news. And here's the thing we've got to get about that. Money is completely neutral in terms of morality. It is. It's totally neutral. It's the love of money that is completely toxic. Money's not good and money's not bad. It's just ink on paper. But the love of money is poison. We've got to get this right and there is a real tension here, and so I want us to press into this. Jesus, he talks, he talked about money and possessions as the second most frequently discussed issue in his whole ministry on earth based on the layout of the Gospels. He didn't shy back from this topic. And it's interesting, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you cannot serve both God and mammon. You can't serve both God and money. It's interesting, he didn't say that about power, he didn't say that about uh, uh, sex or anything else, popularity. He just said that about money. Why? I'm convinced it's because it is the number one competitor for your heart. We have a heart that was made for God. And money and stuff becomes the, the most likely thing to get us off course. So we've got to learn a healthy balance about what does a right perspective about money and possessions look like? Well, to get it, I think we at least have got to frame the conversation 
with the things that have been said that are wrong about money and possessions. The, the two extremes that, that miss a healthy balance. The two unhealthy mindsets in the church concerning wealth, we might sum up this way, as the prosperity gospel and the poverty gospel. Have you heard both of them? Oh, if you've grown up in the Bible Belt, you have. If you've been in church much, you have. Last week, we talked at length about the prosperity gospel. If you weren't here, I would encourage you to go back and listen to last week's message because I think it's really relevant for us. Prosperity gospel, it, it's, I guarantee you, if you were home right now, uh, you could hear many different channels, different guys broadcasting the, the prosperity gospel. It's, it's very simple. God wants us all to be rich. Literally, financially, materially rich, healthy. This is God's plan. This is how he rewards his children that he loves. If you have faith, if you live a life pleasing to God, bam, he's going to pour out wealth on you, the prosperity gospel. If you don't have it, it's a lack of faith or you're not living right, there's a problem on your part. Everybody's supposed to receive. That's the prosperity gospel. It is, as we said last week, it is false good news. However... At the other end of the spectrum, there is a much less popular but probably equally declared message. And this is not broadcasting a lot on TV today. This is playing in small churches across America today. It really is. And it is the poverty gospel. And it's no more true than the prosperity gospel. The poverty gospel is the opposite message. It's the message that if you really love Jesus, you got to give him everything. You've got to sell all you've got. The message that Jesus communicated to one person in the Gospels has become the universal message of the poverty gospel. When Jesus said to the rich young ruler, you, young man, need to go and sell all of your vast possessions and give all of that to the poor and then come follow me. He said that to one person. And they've universalized that message for everybody. If you really want to follow Jesus, if you really love Jesus, you've got to give it all up. You can't be close to God and have nice stuff. you got to be poor. The poorer you are, the deeper your faith. So give it up for Jesus. If you grew up under the poverty gospel, you've never probably been able to really enjoy any of the nice things you've ever had in life because by, by nature it's just been drilled in, in your heart and mind. You should feel guilty if you got anything nice. If you've ever bought a new car, you felt guilty when you drove it if you grew up under the poverty gospel. Because you can't have a new car and really love Jesus, can you? I guess not unless it's one of those real smart cars that was really cheap or something. You, know, you, just, you can't have nice stuff. You love Jesus. you just got to give it all to missions, give it all to the poor. Some of you are looking at me like, I'm not sure when I'm supposed to be agreeing or be offended. Or Do you all know the message that I'm talking about? Anybody in the, in the room besides me ever heard the poverty gospel before? Yeah, about 10 or 12 of us have heard the poverty gospel. Well, here's the thing. When it comes to money and possessions and the message of the church, you've got to keep it between the ditches. And those are the two ditches. We've got we to keep ourselves centered in the middle of the road because all the while there are voices calling to us from both ditches. God wants you to have it all. He wants you to be blessed. You should fake it till you make it. Declare your prosperity until you walk in it. That's a ditch. Stay out of that ditch. If you love Jesus, you've got to give it all away. That's a ditch. We've got to stay centered. What is the central message? What does that look like? Well, that's what we want to press into. Let's, let's continue to press in. 
Deuteronomy 8.18. We said context and then other passages. So let's look at what another passage has to say about this topic. Deuteronomy 8.18 says, But remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Well, that's an interesting thought. That doesn't fit well with the poverty gospel. If wealth is evil, if it's all bad, why would God give us this ability to produce something that's evil? He doesn't. God gives us the capacity to be productive. And God understands that wealth can actually be something that's very beneficial in the kingdom. Wealth can be leveraged in so many different ways to accomplish good. God intends for us to use it that way. That's why he gives us an ability to do this. So here's what we've got to learn to do if we're going to keep it in the middle of the road. We've got to learn not to apologize for the blessings of God and not to elevate the blessings of God so that they become the goal, that they become the thing that we chase after. No, Jesus himself is what we chase after. To know him, to live in intimacy with him. He is the great prize, not the stuff. But along the way, when he allows us to experience significant blessings, we don't apologize for it. We maximize it. We make the most of what he gives to us. But we stop apologizing for what God gives to us. You ever notice how much we'll do that? I confess I've noticed myself too many times doing that. Apologizing for the blessings of God. I mean, who does that with the other stuff in your life? I mean, when somebody comes along and they see a major blessing in your life, and suppose they look at you and say, man, I see what your marriage looks like, and it is a blessing to watch. I love to watch how you and your spouse get along, how you support each other. It just, it's a picture of what I believe God wants between a man and a woman. You are blessed to have that marriage. How many times would you say in response to that, well, you know, it just ain't everything it looks like. It just ain't all that you think it is from the outside. I mean, she ain't that good of a cook. And you should see her without her makeup on. And when she wakes up in the morning, ooh, her breath would knock a bird out of the air. I mean, it's, it's just not everything you think it is. Who would say that? Nobody in their right mind would. You'd say, you're right. I am blessed. God gave me a wonderful woman who loves me and who loves him. Yes, I am blessed. Praise God for that. Somebody looks at you and says, you are so blessed to have the kids that you have. They're healthy and they... They look like they're doing well in school, and they're, they're just well-behaved, and they just look like their lives are moving in the right direction. You're blessed. I mean, who's going to hear that and go, well, you ought to see them at home. I got a bunch of wild banshees. They're not nearly as smart as you think they are. A couple of them are dumb as dirt. <laughs> not nearly as blessed as you think I am. Who would do that? No. We just feel a healthy sense of pride and gratitude. Man, God is good. He gives us so much better than what we deserve. And just when we hear that, we just should go, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for acknowledging that. I know it's not because of me. It's not something that I deserved. And yet God's done it anyway. He's just, he's good like that. So why is it when God blesses us with material possessions that we've suddenly got to get weird about it? Suddenly start apologizing for it. And, and I confess, even as I say that, I feel convicted. Jackie and I moved in uh, November, moved seven doors down the street, moved into a beautiful house. And because of the very thing that I'm talking about, I feel like I need to apologize for it every time 
the issue of us moving comes up. Well, we just did it as an investment. We just got a really good deal. Why apologize for it? I'm like, what's wrong with me? Why can't any of us just say, holy cow, God is just good. I, I love that for this season of life we live in a beautiful house. I love that we get to use it for ministry. But I just love that for whatever reason, he's just let us enjoy this. Glory to God. I'm grateful that I live there. Why can't we just enjoy the blessings of God without making them the goal or without getting puffed up and go, well, I really deserved it. I mean, I've been working hard for so long. I'm glad God finally noticed. It was high time. All those years I didn't get a race. No. We don't live where we live or drive what we drive because we deserve it. We don't need to apologize for it. We need to show gratitude for it and just maximize it. You know what? My favorite thing we get to do with our house is to open it up every week and to have our small group family there. And I just love getting to do ministry in our home. That's so cool. Let's maximize whatever God has given to us and just give him thanks for it all the while. Jumping on ahead as we continue to consider the context for this. Let's move down to verse 17 in 1 Timothy 6. He says, command. Everybody say, command. Difference between suggest and command. Command those who are rich in this present world. Not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Now, I know... I know the easy thing for us to do with this verse. Now, he ain't talking to me. He is not talking to me. He is very clear. He's talking about the rich. You command the rich these things. I'm, I'm definitely not rich. That's what we want to all say. But let's do a little exercise with that. Don't raise your hands on any of these. Just think through it with me. How many of us right now, either in your pocket or on the seat next to you or in your purse or in your vehicle, is a smartphone worth several hundred dollars, if not a thousand plus, which is more than a large percentage of the world will earn in 2019? And when the service is over, how many of us are going to walk out those doors and we're going to climb in a vehicle that we own? Do you realize just at that point we could stop and say, if you're getting in a vehicle that you own, it makes you among the richest 9% of people on the planet today. So we'll climb in our 9% vehicle and we'll drive out of the parking lot and we'll probably drive past at least a dozen restaurants getting to the restaurant that's really got what we want. And we'll go in that restaurant where we're going to pay somebody else to prepare our food and pay somebody else to serve our food and to wash our dishes and we'll look at a menu with dozens of options and we'll struggle to make the really hard choice of the day as to which of these items we're going to have somebody else prepare for us and then once we've placed our order if it takes them more than 12 minutes to get the food to our table we're going to be offended and decrease the amount of our tip because they were so slow in spite of the fact that he or she was not the one cooking the food. And then when we're done eating at somebody else's table where somebody else is doing the dishes, we'll go back out to our 9% car and we'll drive to our house where, maybe most incredibly of all, we will park our car in our car's house. It has its own house for most of us. 
which happens to be larger than the homes of the majority of the people who live on the planet today. And once we've parked our 9% car in its own house, then we'll walk into our houses. Where we'll walk up to whichever toilet we choose to go to, and we'll deposit our waste in water that is clean enough to drink. Though most of the world, a large part of the world, doesn't have access to water clean enough to drink and stay healthy. And we'll send stuff down the line in clean water. And we'll bump up the climate control to make sure we're not a degree or two too warm or too cool before picking up the remote to access our flat screen on the wall. And a little later in the day, we'll go into our two-story closet. Have you got one of those? I do. A first story of clothes and a second story of clothes. And we'll look at clothes hanging from wall to wall and we'll just shake our heads and say, I can't believe I don't have anything to wear tonight. Maybe we should stop there. Yes. Can you please just agree with me? We are rich beyond measure. We are rich beyond words. When I said we're in the top 9% if you own a car, by the time you add up all the things that I just said, it is staggering the percentage that we belong to. When you consider where we stand in relation to all of the humans who've ever lived on this planet, we're not just in the top 1%. We are way up in the top 1%. Paul, when he wrote these words, command those who are rich not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth. He could not conceive of anyone on the receiving end of that letter living with the level of wealth that we have. The wealthy that he was referring to could not begin to touch the lifestyles that we live in. I'm not trying to beat you up over that. You don't need to be ashamed of it. You don't need to, to apologize for it. We just need to own it when he says... Here's a message for the rich. That's where we need to underline that. Put a message in the margin that says, this is me. Listen up. He's talking to us. So now are we all dialed in? Church, are we all dialed in? He's talking to us. Yes, indeed. So now let's hear the message again. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Don't you love the balance of that command? Don't be cocky. Don't start thinking, I deserve this. I worked hard. I earned it all. Come on, let's get real. We live, by and large, the way that we live because we won the birth lottery. We were born in the 20th century, or maybe a few in the room, in the 21st century. We were born when we were born in the land that we were born in, and we didn't work to achieve that. I could name off countless other places that if you and I had been born, for all of our intelligence and all of our hard work, we'd still be poor as dirt. We enjoy the wealth we enjoy because we were born where we were born when we were born. He says, don't be arrogant. Don't put your hope in wealth. Put your hope in God and realize that he provides us with all of these things for our enjoyment. He wants you to enjoy what he's given you. I love that he included that. He's not trying to beat up people who have wealth. 
Enjoy those things. Realize God takes pleasure in your enjoyment of what he's provided. When you can see it came from him, it's an expression of his love, and that he loves for you to just enjoy it, you can just enjoy the daylights out of it and be grateful all the while. But he says, be careful. Don't put your hope in money and stuff. And yet it's so tempting to do that, isn't it? Why is it so tempting to put our hope in money and possessions? Money particularly. What does it mean to put your hope in money? I think the reason that it's so inviting and what it really means is that we buy into the lies of money, the promises of money. And and let me just throw a couple of them out for you. Would you not agree that these are some of the promises and the lies of money? That more money will equal more happiness. Do you realize we're promised that all the time? Once heard a fellow say, the proof of that is in a wave runner. I've never seen an unhappy person on a wave runner, and money will buy a wave runner. More money equals more happiness. You get what he's talking about? Every commercial for everything that they want to sell you that you can buy with money, everybody's smiling. I'm happy because I've got the Ronco, whatever, whatever, you know. Buy this with money and you'll be happier. More money equals more happiness. It is the message of our whole advertising culture. If you just have the money and you buy the product, you will be happy. More money equals more happy. Here's the second line. More money equals more security. If you just have more money, you could pay off your credit card debt. You could pay off your student loans. You could pay off your car. You could make a down payment on a house. And that would be security. Debt paid. Don't get me wrong. Debt paid is a good thing. But when you think that those things will create security, if you think they will, try it. Try doing those things and see how much security you have in life. It's a lie. Money doesn't buy security. Money doesn't buy happiness. Money's promising all of these things that it'll do for us. Money promises you significance. Whether you think of it in these terms or not, it is so wired into us, especially when we don't have much. To think, man, if I could just have that car, if I could just have that house, I'd feel so much better. I think people would look at me differently. What would we feel? We'd feel significant. We'd feel like we had really arrived. Our culture has so brainwashed us that if we live in a modest home and if we live in a, or drive a car that's more than you know eight or ten years old, I mean, nobody talks about it out loud, and yet most of the world looks at us this way. We think that people are looking at us and judging us, and they probably are half the time. But I wonder what his deal is. I wonder where he got off track. Because, I mean, if he's driving a car that's that old, I mean, there must be something wrong with him. As if our stuff defines our significance. More money equals more happiness, more security, more significance. And the truth of the matter is, it can't pay off on any of the above. We've been deceived. We're driving under the influence of money. And we need desperately to get back on track. The fact of the matter is money will not meet our deepest needs because only Jesus can do that. This is our only hope for finding balance again. I can assure you of this. Most of us have at some point tried chasing money. 
We've tried to find our security, our significance, our happiness, and money. You chase that long enough, and I'll guarantee you what you'll find is that no matter how much money you've got, money won't get your kids off of drugs. Money won't keep your teenage kids from getting pregnant. Money won't put love back in a dead marriage. Money won't restore hope to a broken heart. Money never cures depression. You see, these are things that only Jesus can address. Money is the empty lie that money is going to supply these things. But the good news is this. If you have a lot of Jesus, you start discovering you don't need a lot of money. The more Jesus begins to fill your life and satisfy you, the more you realize, I don't have to have a bigger house or a bigger income or a newer car or the next iPhone upgrade to be happy. I find so much satisfaction in knowing him and being involved in what he's doing in the world. More Jesus begins to lead to more contentment, which is the real joy to living with true wealth. A wealth that has nothing to do with how much money you have in the bank. You know, when I think about the, the core truth behind all of this, a big piece of it is just coming to understand that when we do have wealth, and most of us do, that we just have to understand God loves for us to enjoy it, but he loves even more for us to understand it wasn't given to me just for me. That God lavishes more on us than what we need because he fully intends for us to share it and to make a difference in the lives of others. Wealth becomes this vehicle that enables us to bring real help into the lives of others. Money doesn't give you happiness and money doesn't give you security, but money does give you leverage to be able to to really open doors for people who live in poverty that they could never get out of. Money enables you to bring clean water and medicines that can save lives to people who have no other hope for those kinds of things. Money becomes part of the muscle for extending the gospel in places that it's never going to get to. Unless we leverage what we've been given in such a way that we can send people. That we can plant. Money's a huge part of that equation. And God wants us to get to the point of realizing we have it because he blessed us with it, but he didn't bless us with it to just use it all on ourselves. That he wants us to use it to make a difference in the lives of others. When I think about this, the person who comes to mind more than anybody else is a dear friend who's with the Lord now, Nels Frerichs. Some of you remember Nels. Some of you have been around long enough that you, you knew Nels. Nels... Uh, was not with us by the time we got to this building, but in the old building, he'd always be on the front row. It's it's fun to see a man in his 70s dancing when you worship. Nels just could not keep himself planted on the ground whenever we would worship. Nels was, in earthly terms, was not a wealthy man. He gave. I would love to know how much he gave away in the course of his life. He must have been made of Teflon because money would not stick to him. It just would not. He just gave it away. He was such an extraordinary figure. He actually, when there still wasn't an iron curtain to go behind, he was a part of uh, 
the many who risk their lives to to get Bibles and to do ministry behind the Iron Curtain. I mean, he's he's traveled to more of the world than just about anybody that I've ever known before. And in all of his travels doing ministry, he just would always come back with things that were reminders of where he had been. It was pretty incredible stuff. If you'd ever been in his house, he lived in this modest little house that he loved dearly. Shiloh is what he called it in, in Foley. If you'd ever been in Shiloh, it was crazy to look around his little house at all of these beautiful handmade things from countries all around the globe that he had visited hanging on the wall, on every table, just all these amazing things. But the thing that stood out the most about that was not all of this vast amount of stuff that he had collected. It was the fact that you could not visit Nails without walking out with some of these wonderful pieces of art and artifacts that he had collected from around the world. I mean, it was not an option because he just loved to give and to share. Small group met at our house, and Nels was in our small group. I don't guess in all that time there was ever a time that Nels ever came to see us that he didn't bring something. He would either bring flowers from his yard or some treasure from his house. If you come visit our house, there's a table in our house that everything on the table is just treasures from Nels from all over the globe, just things that he would give to us. I mean, eventually you have to dedicate a table or a room or something to make it the Nels room because he would just give so much stuff away. His home, he would just always be giving away space in his little bitty home. He just always sharing it with other people. He was just a picture of the reality that we're talking about today. He didn't let what he had stick to him. When Christmas would roll around, a gift exchange with Nels was just an incredible treat. I guess in all the time we knew Nels, he never bought a gift to give to us. His gifts always meant so much more than that. He would go through his house and just pick a number of different items that he wanted to give to us. And, I mean... You always felt small on the gift exchange with Nell. We'd go buy stuff to give to Nell's. Nell's would give stuff from the heart that he had owned for years that he would now pass on to share. And I just think, wow, this was a guy who really got it. He enjoyed to the max what God gave him, but he just never let his possessions possess him. Something that he had enjoyed looking at and, and something that would be a reminder for him for years of, of relationships and ministry that had happened in a part of the country. And yet it was his great joy when he saw an opportunity to go, here, but now I'd like for you to have this. That's a picture of balance. That's living between the ditches. Poverty doesn't make me love Jesus anymore. Wealth doesn't mean Jesus loves me anymore. Living between the ditches means I enjoy what God's given me. I give him thanks and praise. I make the most of what he's given me, but I don't keep my fingers too tightly wrapped around it. I just make sure that it doesn't own me, which brings us to the last thing that I want to talk about today. We conclude with verses 18 and 19. He says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. And in this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they they will take hold of the life that is truly life. I I know this, and I'm not talking down to anybody when I say this, but of, of the people in the room, those watching and listening online, I know there will be plenty of people who will file away what we've talked about today. It'll just, it'll be like the mission trips that we've been on and you came back and three days later you shrugged off everything that you saw and, you know, while you were there, 
I'm never going to be the same again. I'm never going to let the water run while I brush my teeth. Or, you know, it's just, I'm going to change everything. For, and then three days later, you go back to living the way you've always lived. Some people, today's message will have that effect. We get to our 9% car and we forget this. But there are some people listening today and tuning in and realizing, I've never gotten in on the life that really is life. There is an emptiness in me. There is a disappointment and a frustration that faith and life have just never seemed to click for me. And they won't until you begin to do the last thing we're talking about today. And that is to overcome the control of mammon, money and stuff. By the way, there's a reason why when Jesus spoke to this, he gave it a personal name. There is a spirit of mammon. This is a personal thing. The enemy makes a spiritual stronghold out of this in our lives. And it robs us of any sense of joy in life. And Paul is saying, you want to get in on the life that really is life, you're going to have to learn to be rich in good deeds and be generous. You're going to have to share. The antidote to the love of money is never more money and more stuff. It is always generosity. The only way to break this hold is you've got to give and give and give. It doesn't mean you have to be poor. It doesn't mean you have to give everything away. But you do have to give. And the beginning point for giving, the beginning point for generosity for people of faith is the tithe. That is not the ending point. This is the training wheels. This is getting us going. And it's crazy how some people just pucker up when you use the word tithe. Like, oh, goodness, is this one of those churches? Yep, it sure is. We're going to teach the whole book. We say in here we have house rules, and the house rules are defined by the book. And the tithe was in place before the law and after the law. Matthew 23, 23, Jesus affirmed the importance of the tithe. He's like, don't let that be the end. There are other things that are more important, but don't you neglect the tithe. How do we run past that? The tithe is such a wonderful set of training wheels for learning generosity. The word tithe means literally a tenth. And it's perfect because no matter how poor or rich we are, a tenth applies across the line. It's the divine portion. We, whatever we would do with the other 90%, we don't touch the tithe because it's God's. And God says, you, in Malachi 3, you take that and use it on yourself and you have robbed me. And then he describes all the bad things that happen when we try and rob him. We get in bad places financially when we do that. He says, honor me by giving back. We begin to learn to give by just giving that first tenth. And for some of us, it's like, but that would be a lot. Then we start to learn to be generous and discover, wow, generosity with the blessing of God works far better than greed without the blessing of God. Put another way, 90% under God's blessing always goes so much further than 100% without the blessing of God. I grew up in a home where from... The earliest memories that I have, giving was always a part of what was modeled. I don't remember my parents ever sitting me down and doing a teaching on tithing and giving. But I just remember the example that they said. In the Baptist church, you'd always get your little box of offering envelopes at the end of December. It'd be your 52 envelopes for the next year. 
And every Sunday morning, without fail, Dad would come in and sit down at the little desk, and he'd pull out. We'd always had our, everybody had their box. Dad would pull out his box. He'd write his tithe check and put it in there. And I just knew, man, I wanted to be like Dad. So I'd go get my quarter, and I'd go get my box, and I'd pull that out. And as you get a little bit older, a quarter becomes a dollar, and it becomes three dollars. And it, you know, it just, it was the training wheels of learning to give. And as you grow in that, you learn not just to be a tither, but to be a giver. That it's a joy to participate in what God is doing in the lives of others, to be a giver through the church, to be a giver in the lives of other people. All of us are rich, and we won't know the life that truly is life until we learn to give back. A portion of that is the tithe that we give through the church. A lot of that is what we give when the Spirit of God says, there's a need, you have a resource, meet a need today in my name. Command those who are rich in this world to be generous. It really is the key, a big key to finding the life that really is life. Would you join me as we turn to the Lord together in prayer? Father, we thank you for how you bless us, for all the ways that you show your love to us. And God, we just want to be faithful in how we handle that. I pray that you'd free us up to enjoy what you've given us, but I pray that you'd also free us up to bless others with that. Or for some who feel like all of life, they've been on the outside looking in, wishing for the life that really is life. Lord, I pray that today that you give away gifts of faith in this place, that we'd be able to trust you, that we'd be able to trust you with our lives, with our future, with eternity, that we'd be able to trust you with what we have. Maybe you're at the place that for the first time in your life, you need to, to give something away in the form of giving your, your trust, your heart, your life, and your future to Jesus and trust him for forgiveness of your sins. If that's the case, why don't you just do that in a simple prayer saying, Jesus, I need you in my life. I want to give you who I am and all that I have and ask you now to forgive my sins, to save me and change me. I promise you, if you pray that in faith, He hears and He answers and gives you a clean slate and a fresh start. There are others of us that know and and trust Christ, but the truth of the matter is we need to, to heed His instruction about how we handle wealth and possessions. And we need to learn, once again, to be generous, to honor Him with what we have. If that's where you are and you realize that's not how you've been living, would you just confess that to God? Would you ask him to just give you what it takes to begin to follow through now to be generous with what you have? The scripture says that the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And if you realize, based on how I live, I must love money more than I realize, just agree with God and ask for his forgiveness. And ask him to just show you now how to begin to give and to live in a way that breaks the hold of the love of money. Father, we pray that this stronghold would be broken in our lives and that you would just pour out a spirit of generosity among us, that we would be a free, liberal, giving people. We welcome your work, Holy Spirit, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi. Thanks so much for taking time to tune in and listen to the message today through Freedom Online. Uh, We would love the opportunity to meet you personally anytime that you're in our area. 
But if today you heard something that really connected or that maybe you've got questions about, you'd like to talk with somebody or have someone pray with you, we'd love to hear back from you. You can reach us in a couple of different ways. You'll find on the website a contacts link. You can contact me or any member of our leadership directly. Or you can call us at the number that you see on the website or at the bottom of the screen now. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope that you have a great week.